Welcome to the Fifth Kind TV. Today we're very excited to welcome to the show Richard Dolan. For the past 25 years, Richard has been a tireless researcher into UFO phenomena. Richard is a fantastic exemplar, in my view, in the field through the wonderful way he sifts through and assesses and filters the fact from the fiction. Uh, Richard's courage and diligence and integrity have given him an almost unique credibility in the field of UFO research. Richard, welcome to The Fifth Kind. Paul, thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here. I am really looking forward to talking to you today. I mentioned the integrity of your reportage, which I think has been really vital in, in inviting wider demographics into the conversation. But personally, I love the energy that you bring to the subject, because whenever I see you talking on this, you look like you're enjoying yourself. You, you look like <laughs> you like your job. And I love that because many people, when they get into this area of research, I think it's very easy for people to become angry, frustrated, and they can become somewhat difficult to have a conversation with. But uh, for me, you make this area of exploration inviting and you motivate me to want to find out more. I'd love so to hear I just I wanted to say that right at the outset. We're going to talk about various topics today, but I would really love to begin with yourself and ask you, uh, how did you first get hooked into this topic? And particularly given how financially challenging the life of a, uh, uh, a researcher can be, what's kept you going? So what got you hooked and how is it that 25 years on, you're still in the field? Uh, first of all, thank you for all of those uh, awesome things you said. I do have an enthusiasm for this subject that has not abated. Uh, there are times when I I feel um, less than stellar about the, the, the field itself, but even that, I mean, I've met so many amazing people. I love doing it. But as far as how I got into this, I was, um, I've said this a number of times, I 25 plus years ago, I thought I had a different life path. And that was in the academic world. It was a world that I loved. Uh, it was a world that I, you know, from my late teen years through my 20s and early 30s, through my years working in uh, as an undergraduate and getting my bachelor's degrees and my years in the uh, graduate programs and master's degrees and PhD program, I thought that this was very congenial to me. I enjoyed the lifestyle. I liked the university setting. I got along very well with all of my colleagues and professors. Um, and so that was simply what I thought I would do. Um, but in the early 1990s, I, I stumbled, uh, two things happened. One was I was not, I was not happy with uh, my dissertation research at the time. I was not happy. Uh, this is not to demean anyone at my uh, alma mater, the University of Rochester. They had a fine program, but I just didn't feel like it was happening for me. I was working on a, I did 100 pages of a doctoral dissertation on U.S. Cold War strategy circa 1950. And I, I was trudging along with it, and I lost my excitement. I think that's really what it was. And I think the academic world was really starting to disillusion me. I was in my early 30s when I had a conversation with a professor about the JFK assassination. 
So it's 1994 when I had this conversation and he had a book in his hand that I had happened to read not long before. It was by a man named Gerald Posner called Case Closed. It was why Oswald supposedly had done it all by himself. And I remembered reading that book on the advice of a friend of mine and uh, I read it and I wasn't a JFK expert, but I was able to pick apart why that book was so terrible. And in fact, me being a smart mouth in the hallway, I'm talking to this professor who's got the book in his hand. He was using it to teach in his class. And I said, you realize that book's a piece of crap, right? It's <laughs> exactly what I said. And he said, no, really? Why? And I rattle off about five reasons off the top of my head why that book was so terrible. And I'll never forget this moment. He said, oh, I understand. You're a conspiracy theorist. Now, in 1994, oh. as a young academic academic wanting to be into that world that was the worst thing he could have said to me and the ultimate insults yeah it's like in in the um, movie lord of the rings you remember that in the first episode where frodo is with his other hobbits and the the writers are coming for the first time and the cinematography the video is so brilliant it telescopes out in this surrealistic way uh people who remember that that's how i felt i thought it was like that. I, I felt like I'm on a cliff, and if I take one more step, I'm going to go off that cliff, and, and my reputation will be ruined in the academic world. I'll never forget it. And we um, resolved the conversation. We laughed, and I went about my way, but it was chilling for me because I, I realized I'm in the Department of History. We don't have really a lot of grant money coming from governments. We're pretty much all on our own. We're independent. There's no institutional pressure at least in theory on me to pursue my intellectual interests and yet here i was and something as mundane as the jfk assassination and in that department at that time you were not allowed to discuss something as as interesting as the john f kennedy assassination so it was a moment where i realized i don't actually know that i want to be in this culture anymore so I was going through all of these tribulations and dealing with a dissertation that was interesting me less and less. And then I stumbled into the UFO subject. I was in a bookstore and I saw a copy of Timothy Good's classic Above Top Secret, the worldwide UFO cover-up. And I'll never forget picking the book off the shelf thinking, wow, everyone talks about UFO cover-ups. And for me, I, I had trained myself to thinking it was all nonsense. But I, I was curious. I will definitely say that. And I remember leafing through his book thinking, oh, I, I see these are allegedly genuine documents. And I see this person is in his book. And I remember reading his diaries. And I, re I read all about this department. And wait, what? He's got them in this UFO context. So it was this moment of, of like what I often call cultural schizophrenia, where you're ensconced in what you realize is this official establishment truth that you're supposed to believe but here's this other potential truth that's quite radical and i think i was at the perfect age i was 31 32 years old when i threw myself into it so i was old enough to have a good foundation in my education but i was still young enough to be uh, to have the energy and to have the the guts to, to throw it all away and to try this something new. I think if I had encountered UFOs even 10 years later or 10 years earlier, I don't, I don't know if it would have worked for yeah. me, but it, it was perfect at that moment. 
And I just made a decision. I thought, I've got the rest of my life to live here. And am I going to just run out the clock, you know, getting some adjunct instructing position, hoping to get tenure at some little college somewhere? Or am I going to do something that's exciting me and that I that's causing me not to sleep at night? And yeah. so I didn't even make the decision all at once. I spent about a year or a little more than that living both worlds. I would sneak UFO books <laughs> into the University of Rochester um, like God forbid anyone saw me with them, but I um, carried them around with me. And I even remember one time I left some books behind and some colleagues or professors. I mean, it's it's so crazy to say this now. We're in 1994. And I, I think I was in this mortal terror that some professor had seen a UFO book that I had. You know, isn't that crazy? But I went through a year of that and and then I just decided, you know what, I'm, <clears throat> I'm obsessed enough about this subject, and this is going to be my dissertation. This is going to be the subject that I'm going to throw myself into. And then it was the next five years of writing UFOs and the national security state. That was that's, it. That was education. That's one of that's so interesting because evidently then before you picked up your first book on ufology something that conversation with your professor had clued oh, yeah. you that um there are official narratives that may not be true and that we're not allowed to question and Absolutely. that was a really important preparation for you wasn't it to come to this whole area and be willing to look behind the veil as it were most definitely um, back in the 1980s, I was fortunate. I spent a summer uh, to study German language in East Germany. It was a communist bloc Germany. It was 1986. Uh, I had a really wild time. I met some. I met a dissident family that were fascinating people. They became my friends. But I remember being fortunate to uh, go around with these, these two brothers. They wanted to party. They took me out to all these cool places in and other parts of Germany. But they also had friends who were like one friend i was in the living room of this gentleman he had been in in prison not long before for political purposes and uh i observed how when the germ the east germans were talking about the really important things that mattered they were whispering in their own living room about how they were listening to west berlin radio for example mm -hmm. even though the signal was jammed but they were able to listen to it and i remembered thinking i was 24 years old that I said, wow, this is like a schizophrenic society. Like you've got official truth, but you've yeah. got this actual truth. But years later, I realized that's a that's a universal concept. Of course, now we all yeah, realize yeah. that. It took me a while to figure that out. And it was yeah. UFOs that opened the door for me. I, I can really relate to that. Uh, I'm just fascinated at what happens. The moment a person can see some... Uh, some daylight between an official narrative and something that may have actually happened it seems to open up pandora's box that's right and they're willing to question everything that they've been taught and for me my journey into this kind of area of exploration began as i began to see daylight between the this familiar because i come from a world of ministry christian ministry I and so i see daylight between the familiar stories that we tell from our ancient texts and what's actually in the ancient texts. And it was anomalies in the ancient texts, beginning with Genesis and my studies there, and then other world mythologies that made me begin to question 
whether we might actually have a memory of ET contact embedded in our ancestral narratives. And that's what got me going. And so you can imagine coming from a world of ministry, my thinking has had to uh, adapt a few times as I've exposed myself to new data. And um, that's, that's a journey I'm sharing at the moment in my book, Escaping from Eden. I wondered for you, wow. in your 25 years in the field, there must have been moments when you've, your thinking has evolved and you've been exposed to new data and you've thought, ah, I'm going to have to change what I think about that. And I wondered if you could share something of the evolution of your thought over the 25 years you've been in the field. I'll try. I will just say, first of all, it happens all the time with me. That has not stopped. And um, in fact, it's almost kicked up into a higher gear in the last couple of years. Um, and it was happening this very morning. I, I'm in my library and I've got it set up finally. Uh, again, once, once again, it's set up well. And so I'm plowing through my books the way I like to do. And it's constantly a challenge. But when I started in 1994 was my first year where I really threw myself into this. And um, I was, I was of the attitude, I got in so cautiously, so conservatively. So back then, my worldview had evolved into, a, I don't want to say it was a straight up materialist worldview. I, I don't think that's quite right, but it was a very conservative, cautious, materialist direction. So um, I guess I would encapsulate it by saying, uh, my attitude was, well, I'll study UFOs, but I don't want to study anything weird like abductions or crop circles. Uh, my yeah. initial question was was very simply, not even were UFOs real? I remembered explicitly telling myself, I personally don't care what my thoughts are. I said, I only care what is the historical likelihood that the United States military has been engaged with this and that they're interested. Like the, all I wanted to know is, know is, are they interested? And if they're interested, why? And and my own opinion, I kept telling myself, is irrelevant. And sometimes I still try to come back to that attitude. In other words, I mean, opinions. Everyone's got an opinion, and they're fallible. But I wanted to know what are the facts. So I started out very, very careful, very factually based. The problem is the UFO subject is a deep, 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 deep subject. So you can make a choice. You can, you can stay at the level that you're comfortable with, that I was initially comfortable with in 1994, or you can keep going into the deeper waters and, and see what it's like. And so what I discovered is that over time, I, it just, it, it's like the waters pulled me in deeper and deeper. And the next thing I knew, I was swimming into the depths. So for example, my first questions were on 1940s and 1950s declassified documents. So was there a military, were there a series of military encounters with the UFOs? Well, that was easy to answer. The answer is yes. And then yes again, and then yes many more times. So that it became obvious that the United States military, and this is through proven, declassified, unarguable documents that come from the United States National Archives, the United States had, and not just the U.S., nations around the world, We I discovered, had ongoing encounters with objects that were not supposed to exist. Case closed. They were disc-shaped. 
they moved in ways that we had no way of of understanding. They um, were silent. They could zigzag. They could instantly accelerate. Everything that we hear about the you know Tic Tac UFO of 2004, pilots are encountering these in the 1940s, and indeed, actually earlier still. Mm. We have limited records on that. So that was interesting. And and for me, the way I my mind has always been, I'm insatiably curious. I can't just shut it down. I can't just say, "All right, I got that sol- solved." The government was interested, yep. and then and then to go onto the fiction, which so many people do, of saying, "Well, I don't know what they are." Hey, the U stands for unidentified. After all, like to me, that's a cop out. You can take it if you want, but that's not for me. I'm curious. It doesn't mean that I'll have the answer. But I like to think about it, and I like to puzzle it out. And I yeah. asked all the logical questions that analysts in the 40s asked. Is this U.S. black budget? Is this Soviet, Russian, anyone else? And, of course, you come up empty, really. You come up empty when you start looking at these possibilities. And that's when it, that moment is when it gets really interesting. Um, but I went through many, many phases of development in the early, very early 2000s. I discovered uh, some really good artificial intelligence writers, people like Ray Kurzweil and Damien Broderick and a um, number of others. And AI um, and then remote viewing. This is all long, long, long time ago. And to okay. me, those interested me. Yeah. Uh, and then and the connection with the UFO subject interested me a great deal. Yeah. Uh, remote viewing in particular, once it became evident to me, that that is a real phenomenon. I, I got interested initially yeah. in remote viewing because I, I realized these guys all saw UFOs, or at least they claimed to see UFOs. They claimed to see extraterrestrials. And I thought, if that guy can see a Soviet submarine while it's being built in 1979 off a Soviet dock, that's Joe McMonagall, then I'm going to take, and, and if he's proven right, which he was, then I'll take him seriously on other things. And the same for people yeah. like Ingo Swan and Pat Price. So studying remote viewing just in and of itself blew open my notions of what I thought physics was and what I thought reality and space and time were. I'm so glad you said that because I wanted to ask you specifically about that uh, area of remote viewing. My introduction to it, other than a few personal experiences, uh, was reading the John Ronson book, uh, Man Who Stare at Goats. Oh, so yeah. I was introduced oh, to it by, by a skeptic. Uh, and it's a book uh, I enjoyed reading but that I don't like. Uh, but what it told me was that there's been serious money invested by government agencies into exploring and using remote viewing in the modern era and the use of remote viewing by intelligence agencies goes right back to the beginning of intelligence agencies as we know them in the 1500s when Queen Elizabeth I set up, uh, uh, what was it, to the beginnings of John MI5. D. And so that's right. Yeah. And so to realize that governments take this seriously made me think again about what it is. My glimpses of remote viewing, I was introduced to that from a spirituality end of things. And this really shifted my worldview. And I was going to ask you about it because, and you can tell me if this is off topic, but uh, you're married to a remote viewer. Yes, and, uh, quite good. <laughs> I wondered if that had uh, had uh, an impact on stretching your worldview further. 
Maybe a little bit. I, I emphasize I was interested in remote viewing long before I knew Tracy. But it is also true that we, she and I have many great conversations about remote viewing. And I will definitely add that I've learned a lot about remote viewing since I've um, since we've been together. So it has deepened my understanding of, of how it works, or at least what it is and what it isn't. Um, there's still a great mystery to it. To me, there's a physics of remote viewing that we haven't fully explained. I mean, it's a simple question, really. How is it that a human being, any human being, is able to see something on the other side of the world, see something in another time, even if even if you get some of these things wrong or if you misinterpret what you're seeing, the fact that people can get hits uh, to the extent that they do should never be the case, and yet it is the case. And for skeptics, I, all I will say is educate yourself on this. It is undeniable. So it says something about space. It says something about time. And it also may say something about causality, which is uncomfortable for me to deal with, and yet it's an unavoidable possibility that causality isn't what I grew up thinking it is. Yeah. So what is free will? What is all of these things? I mean, these are old questions. We're not the first to ask them, but remote viewing opens that up. Um, but for me, when I, I mentioned it in context of my UFO evolution, remote viewing was really helpful because it, it allowed me to recognize that there are, are types of evidence that I that I can't always prove. So, for example, people will talk all the time about when they have an encounter with an alleged alien that the communication is telepathic in, in one way or another. Now, we don't, to my understanding, I don't think we really have a good understanding of the physics of telepathy. Yes, I can understand a little bit. Um, extra low frequency uh, wavelengths out of the brain. I'm no brain expert, but I read these things. So anywhere like around five or six hertz is very low meditative frequency. And those are longer waves that some have speculated might be more effective in transmitting information. So I'm willing to accept that as a non-scientist. But nonetheless, we don't really have a, a science of telepathy. Nevertheless, the fact that I know quite confidently that remote viewing is an actual thing makes me open to the at least possibility that that consciousness and that let us say spirituality are factors in understanding this phenomenon much more than I would have wanted to admit 20 plus years ago yeah. because really what I is remote viewing it but spirituality factors into this you know what is what is it that can allow you to see on the other side of the world well ancients had a word for that they called it the soul and maybe it's as good a word as any i mean there's probably more going on anyway i was i think i interrupted you no that's fine i was just going to say if if i'm speaking to a skeptic on this topic if i ask them have you or has anyone in your family ever experienced a glimpse of remote viewing or precognition or a te telepathic connection. Everyone has a story. Everyone so, has had uh, moments of this and glimpses of this. Uh, and the mo moment you pause and, and realize that, it ought to get you questioning 
how does that work? Can it be developed? And the moment you realize that a huge amount of money has been spent on developing it by governments, you then have to start taking it seriously and explore. And it is part of many spiritual traditions, which was my introduction to it in the beginning. Now, uh, to return to something you mentioned earlier, you talked about um, the, uh, the Tic Tac encounters. And uh, last year, something quite significant happened because the encounters with Tic Tac UFOs in 2004 by the USS Nimitz mm -hmm. um, were authenticated. And it seemed to me that there'd been a massive policy shift because for 72 years, the official line had been one of silence and debunking. And we seem to have gone back in one hit to the pre-1947 position whereby authorities were talking openly, saying we're pursuing these things. We don't know what they are. We'll tell you when we find out what they are. And we seem to have gone back to that. It was a massive shift. I was surprised it didn't get more play in the news. I was wondering what you thought the significance of that shift was. Uh, why wasn't it bigger news? Why weren't more people talking about it? I think because it's not a monolithic shift. I think what we're still seeing within the United States uh, power structure is a, a, a lot of infighting and essentially um, we can call it power struggle. I don't know who all the players are, but it's clearly they're, they're not at as one on this matter. So just to give you an example, I had a conversation with one journalist a uh, little over a year ago who is very, very deeply engaged in um, researching the organization TTSA to the Stars Academy. And they're intimately involved in all of what's been going on the last few years with this. And uh, I offered this journalist my own analysis of TTSA. And I said, I'd like to know what you think of this, which is essentially TTSA is a, I see them as a private faction that has allies and enemies within the Pentagon, allies and enemies within the, intelli within the intelligence community. And this journalist said, absolutely, that is true. He says, emphasis on enemies. So there's many more enemies and allies. Uh, there are absolutely hostile factions within the Pentagon and within the um, intelligence community against any form of openness and, and admission on the UFO subject to this moment. But the fact is, with as with all power structures, there's different opinions uh, exist. And uh, there have always been a number of smart and sometimes semi-influential people within structures of power who believe in some openness on this. I spoke to one, I've mentioned this once or twice in the past, one scientist, I had this conversation maybe a decade ago. Uh, this was a scientist who has had, and I think still has, high-level access to some very powerful people in the United States intelligence community. And he, um, A, he said to me that he knew for a fact that at deep, 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 deeply classified levels that there were scientists who had alien technology and bodies in their possession. Actually, his, his exact words, because he's so precise, was at least one body that I personally know about, he said to me. But and there are more. But anyway, one, one thing he said to me was, he said, look, it is my knowledge that at every so often, every five or more years, there are conversations high level about whether or not to have a disclosure on UFOs. He said that he himself was on one occasion a committee member, a subcommittee member that was 
charged with looking at legal ramifications of UFO disclosure, even though he's not a lawyer. He's a scientist. And he said, look, our conclusion was this is too messy. There's just no way. We're not, we decided not to. Uh, and all apparent, I don't know what the other committees decided, but they all decided, nope, not this, this time. So, but there are factions and there are discussions that appear to take place. And I think what's happened lately with the Navy is, as one other insider said to me, it's just more, too much toothpaste is out of the tube and it's, you can't get it back in. So in other words, what yeah. they mean is, I always, I, I laugh and sometimes roll my eyes when I hear people saying that TTSA is some kind of PSYOP or a CIA operation. And I believe that those people who say that could not be more wrong. I'm not in TTSA. I, I, don't, I don't have any skin in the game here, uh, except that I'm interested in what looks to be true. And what... I think is the case is that you have a group of private ex-Intel guys. Not all ex-Intel guys are evil. Some ex-Intel guys are actually really great. Uh, you know, William Binney of the NSA is one of them. Ray McGovern of the CIA is another. They're like are good people who have been in the intelligence world who then believe in telling the public true things about what goes on. Like, that happens. And I think with TTSA, you have a private group of people who have their own interests Maybe philanthropic, maybe selfish. Who cares? They have an interest in getting some UFO information out. And they've done so more successfully than any individual or any organization that's ever existed, ever. They get some yeah. stuff out there, but they have enemies within that structure that does not want this information out. Um, people don't realize, like when those videos were released through the auspices of TTSA two and a half years ago, it really happened because, at least it appears now looking at it, that Luis Elizondo was able to get those videos cleared without being completely 100% open that they were really amazing UFO videos. They were only described in this very vague, generic way of, of advanced aerial vehicles. And it, and he had a couple of friends, apparently within the FOIA process, and he got them out. And the Navy was yeah. suddenly thinking, "How the hell did this happen?" And like, but by then it was too late. So, uh, so that's how it goes. I was, I was going to ask about Louis Elizondo. He was he headed up the Pentagon's previously secret office for investigating UFO phenomena. He went mm. public uh, last year, I think, with regard to. Uh, his former role of investigating cases and materials. That was perhaps the most intriguing thing he yes. said. Now, he hasn't been, to my knowledge, officially debunked. Uh, he's still alive. So does, do those mere facts represent some kind of a soft disclosure policy that's, that's in play here? I've often wondered... Um, in fact, early on in this process, and you know, just to remind people, the New York Times article and the Politico article on this did not come out until December of 2017. So this is all still quite recent. Um, <clears throat> and in the immediate aftermath, say for the first six or more months, I was going on a different hypothesis, was, which was that this was some form of controlled disclosure. And that was the phrase that I was using. Um, and partly because, you know, you look at the New York Times and it is 
absolutely the voice of the establishment. These are the people who got the United States into the war in Iraq under the pretense of fictitious weapons of mass destruction and all the other things that the New York Times lies about. So, And they debunked UFOs for 70 years, and then suddenly they do a 180-degree about-face, and I thought, whoa, that's... You know, with two halfway decent articles on UFOs, like those New York Times articles were not complete and they were not 100% honest, but they were not terrible the way the New York Times has always been. <clears throat> so it made me wonder, is this part of a controlled uh, process? And and you could wonder that because, you know, as I often feel like every secret has an expiration date. Every secret has a shelf life. And then they, you could think, well, the secret starts to go bad, <laughs> just like bad food. And is it that the UFO secret is just no longer possible to contain? Like, this is what I wondered. And so yeah. if it's no longer possible to contain, then it would be your obligation as the establishment to roll out the disclosure process in such a way that you maintain control over the spin. And so that would be the theory of controlled disclosure. And this is why I wondered, well, is TTSA their vehicle for that? But I actually don't believe that. Um, what I do think is that TTSA has their own agenda. Now, what is that agenda? Do they want to make money? Probably. They probably would love to make defense contracting money. Uh due to the exploitation of UFO-related technologies that are currently classified that they may not have access to. Like, to me, that would be a reasonable guess and, and a wonderful utopian scheme for them. Like, they could get members of Congress to, to be interested in what they have to say and have a partial declassification of some UFO-related yeah. tech that they could then exploit to yeah. get... To get and so that's not a noble uh, reason, if that is the case. But <clears throat> as I like to say, that's why we're human beings and not angels. Like we we all have motivations. Everyone's sure. out for whatever reason. And I'm not going to condemn them because they want to make money. What I'm interested in is getting the truth of UFOs out. Now they, uh, I just, well, I'll just la add this one last thing. I've spoken mm -hmm. to a few of those people in TTSA, and I'll just say. They are, they're very, very smart, and they've obviously got ulterior motives, but I will just say a few of them, the ones that I've spoken to, clearly seem to care about UFO secrecy. Like, I think they actually believe in getting at least some of this information out. They think it's good for the world. And yeah. one of them I spoke to years ago, and he absolutely made that clear to me long before there was a TTS saying. So... I'm going to take them at their word to that extent. I've seen a few things that have made me wonder if we're in, in a period where there's a policy of soft disclosure going on. Um, uh, I, my attention was caught by uh, Prime Minister Medvedev some years ago saying what he said on camera about contact with other species, the fact that That's Paul right. Hellyer, former Minister of Defence for Canada, is allowed to speak uh, as he has done, the fact that Apollo astronauts who are bound by layers and layers of official secrets have been able to say what they have, and I'm thinking in particular of Ed Mitchell uh, calling on the American government to disclose, as other governments have. Uh, so I've seen a few things like that that I'm wondering, is that soft disclosure, that the, the, the semi-official uh, 
statements are coming are being leaked out in this kind of a way and they're not being debunked that's different to how things were in the past and then i don't know if you remember in 2009 the roman catholic church did something quite surprising with a colloquium that it held to discuss yes. the implications of contact with other civilizations and when i heard that i wondered is this happening because these authorities want to be ready in case somebody else makes the disclosure and then they can say oh don't you remember we did mention this and uh, soften the blow in that way that might, for, for me personally it was the the 2009 colloquium that really got my attention and i thought why are we being prepared there, there must be yeah. some disclosure they're expecting interesting well like the examples you cited so dmitry medvedev who in 2012 at davos made a uh, a fascinating statement so medvedev uh, for many years was the number two man in russia behind putin and uh, for four years was president of russia while putin was prime minister they did a switch for four years and um so what medvedev said to a, a reporter who actually was laughing because she literally could not believe this and i think she was yeah. confronted with something that was so outrageous to her that she it's a normal reaction for some people but what medvedev said is that when you become president of russia you're given two briefcases one that has all the nuclear secrets all the codes and the other has the information on all the aliens who are living in the country and when he said in alien, the country that's right he um i think that's what he said right and yeah he did translation uh, he was totally straight faced. This is Davos, Switzerland, a major. Now, was he pulling her leg? I don't think so. Like you watch that video, and but now, why did he say it? I don't. I don't think of that as soft disclosure. Uh, the Roman Catholic event, I might have a different opinion about. It. I'm. I'm not sure what I think. In Medvedev's case, and in the case of Paul Hellier, uh, in the case of Edgar Mitchell. I would not. I don't think that those are. And for Medvedev, I personally believe, not having spoken to the man, that, you know, people get tired. We're human beings. I don't know what was on his mind. Maybe he needed a cup of coffee. Maybe he wanted a drink. Maybe it was the end of the day and he was just like, maybe his attitude is, I don't give a shit, sorry, uh, but I'm just going to say this. Um, I don't know. Like, it's an interesting thing to ask about. In the case of Edgar Mitchell, what, and by the way, with Medvedev, that statement was commented on and ridiculed and dismissed, and that was the end of it. It just dropped into the black hole of media coverage. Same with all of Edgar Mitchell's statements. None of them received anything that I would call serious attention. I would talk about this for years, years. I wrote about this. I talked about it. I would say, why is this Apollo astronaut has talked about knowing that there are alien bodies and technology and that Roswell was real and where's the media? And they treated him like some crazy uncle that you would just laugh about. And that's how the media really did treat Edgar Mitchell for years about this. Um, in the case of Paul Hellyer, it's the same exact thing. Hellyer, who I know and like and respect greatly, is an amazing man. I really like Paul. But they just ignore him and they treat him as a little loopy. And, you know, he made that one interview with RT that uh, with Sophie Chevronaza, which... Paul, if you're listening, I just don't think it was the best interview. Like, he's like, there's all these alien races out there. And I mean, he came at her with a fire hose of information where it was the... So, 
In other words, it's the media will dismiss him, and they do because when he was assist, uh, vice prime minister of Canada and when he was minister of defense, as he said, he didn't have access to that information. So these are statements he's made as a, essentially as a private citizen, and they're easy for skeptics to dismiss. Now, with the Roman Catholic Church, it is interesting because they're 2,000 years old. <laughs> they have a lot of power. They have a lot of secrets. And yeah. one really does wonder what, you know, they had uh, Monsignor Corrado Balducci for many years, who was a very close yes. friend of John Paul II, who yes. uh, talked openly about extraterrestrials living here on Earth. So it's interesting. But, and the, the one thing that I would say to support what you say about soft disclosure is that once a year, there's a group known as the Bilderbergs, and they meet in a five-star hotel somewhere in the world, and they to truly do map out the direction that they want the world to go. They do this. It's real. And for many years, they were secret. Then people like Alex Jones and others out of them, um, you know, over and over again, and they now they have their own website. But they're, they, I call them the masters of the universe. They are the most powerful financial and political people in the world, and they meet informally, and they map out in their little subgroups what they want to happen in their various loci of power. And so it's not, I mean, they, they created the EU. It was their meeting in 1954 that created the foundations of the European Common Market, which became the EU. That was them. Um, and they've had many other. They talked about the end of the Soviet Union before the Soviet Union ended. And you know, many other things have to do with globalization and basically lining their own pockets. So do they have conversations on the ET presence? I'm going to guess that they do, but I don't know. And if they do, would they ask themselves, okay, this is not a secret that's, that can last forever. Yeah. So what we need to do is get out in front of it. We need to control the global media. Well, we've got that. We need to uh, put the alternative media further to the fringe. Well, we're doing that. We'll deplatform people on YouTube and Google and all of that nonsense on Facebook. Yeah. Okay, great. So when they, when they are confident that they have total control or 99 plus percent control of the global conversation and the narrative and spin, we might, yes, we might see a, a very controlled yeah. rollout of, a, of an undoubtedly misleading UFO reality. That's, that's really interesting that you say that. You, you talked earlier, I love the analogy that too much toothpaste is out of the, the, right. the tube for it to get back in. And yes. I know Americans are polled every so often on this question of, um, to give an idea of if Americans were told that we have been in contact with other civilizations for a number of decades, how many would be surprised? And, uh, you know, the percentages vary, but uh, a lot of Americans would not be surprised. It seems a lot of toothpaste is out of the tube. Right. And I want to roll that in with a couple of other points, mm. which is, we mentioned earlier the, the official response to the Nimitz um, footage uh, being brought to press by Luis Elizondo, and <clears throat> the official narrative seems to be the pre-1947 one of we're engaging with these, they're real, we don't know what they are. For how many decades can that be the story before that just becomes 
not believable. Exactly. Like the not, we don't know what they are part is not yes. believable. Yes, that's well, right. Well, absolutely. It's, <laughs> this is why I think a focus on things like UFO crash retrievals is so critical to our understanding of this phenomenon. And in fact, I'll just say, uh, I've pointed this out. As far as I can tell, every single person inside TTSA knows that there are crash retrievals. In fact, Luis Elizondo had a conversation on U.S. national TV last May of 2020, of excuse me, 2019, with Tucker Carlson of Fox, about that ended with a discussion of crash retrievals of UFOs. Yes, and it was it was an amazing moment in in corporate television to have this conversation. They all know that this is real. All of them know, but they play along with the Navy's fiction. That, well, we don't know. They could be Russian for all we know. They could be Chinese, and we have to take this seriously. It's a load of nonsense, and everyone who talks about this honestly understands that. So I think what's happened, like in the, but but also those people have said to me, well, what do you think? Do you think we can just go out and say, yeah, there have been crash retrievals? Like, are you out of your mind? There's no way that they can do this. Like, they have, they are dealing with, and the Navy as well, like the, those in the Navy who are making this admission, and I wish I knew how the internal power dynamic worked in the Navy. I don't. But it's not hard to figure out that you've got the pros and the cons sides of this. And those who believe in opening this up m absolutely realize they have got to be oh so careful about how they do this. Um, because if they go too far... If they acknowledge that there are crash retrievals, then you can't pretend that we don't know what they are. And then not only that, then you have to ask a lot of uncomfortable questions like, okay, mm. how have you kept this secret all this time? How, yes. how have you kept this from the political community, from the academic community, the scientific community? Um, that's from the media. All of these open up very obvious – I mean – questions that no one wants to get into we have a world in which yeah. uh, i we have these enforced fictions that we all live through and and our the power structure of our society enforces these untruths that we all have to pretend are real so one of the untruths is well these ufos are a mystery like the the untruth used to be there are no ufos so now, just like in Orwell's 1984 in Oceana, we are, well, we have a new, a new official truth is, well, they're yes. here, but we don't know they are. But if they were to say, we know what they are, and we've had been working their technology, and it's revolutionary, and maybe there are energy solutions, bye-bye petroleum, or may, <laughs> there may be bye-bye petroleum now anyway, with the COVID, mm -hmm. but, um, but it, it's way too radical. And it's, it's way too unsettling to the structure of power as it exists. And so, therefore, in the ultra-controlled media that we have, they're clearly not willing to go that far and yeah. open this up. Now, I personally, like who listens to me, a few people, but no one, it's not like national or international media. Uh, but I have been trying to push this idea that crash retrievals of this technology have happened. And in fact, yes. the case for this is really excellent. Uh, and so it's yes. been 
a strong interest of mine, a revived interest of mine, I should say, for the past year or more, because definitely I want to expose the hypocrisy. And I think I just think people are tired of being spoon-fed BS for their entire lives. Um, and it's time that we have the truth. Like your tax dollars and my tax dollars pay for that secrecy. Like they do. You're Australian yeah. and your money pays for Pine Gap and your money pays for Australian military participation in that secrecy, just as my tax dollars pay for the United States participation in that secrecy. Yeah. And I'm just tired of pretending that, uh, you know, I don't, I don't need to know. Like I do need to know I'm a citizen of a free country and that's my attitude. So um, I, I yeah. noticed uh, Ed Mitchell uh, when he was speaking, I think it was at the 2001 disclosure event. He said to anyone who is uh, unaware or is a skeptic, I would encourage them to read the law regarding L-O-R-E regarding. And then he said specifically crash retrievals. That was the one topic he thought would, wow. would uh, open it up for someone who's starting yeah. from zero. I'll tell you why. Yeah, tell me why. It all has to do with the Admiral Thomas Wilson document that I have been talking so much about for the past year. Uh, that was my next question. I was oh, going to ask about the, the Admiral Wilson leak. I don't know a lot about what it is. Can you tell us what the significance of it is? It's quite significant, yes. Uh, I'll give you the, the best backstory of it that I can, um, starting with my own knowledge of it, which was back in the year 2006. So for almost 14, 15 years ago, 14, um, someone who was in the perfect position to have access to this document showed, it, showed me two pages, possibly three pages, and I can't remember if it was two or three. It was at least two, and it was at most three. Uh, he described the situation. He said... Um, so first of all, I'll let you look at this, but you can't photograph it. Sorry, you can't record this. I said, fine. Um, but he described how it was known to him that in 1997, the researcher Stephen Greer, when he was making his rounds in Washington, D.C., uh, which he was doing, and we know this, trying to get members of Congress and anyone of the Washington establishment to listen to what he had to say about the UFO cover-up. And by the way, Turns out Edgar Mitchell was with him during those meetings. Uh, the scientist said to me that one meeting was with a very powerful member of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And they had a briefing, and this scientist said to me, in the aftermath of that meeting, this member of the Joint Chiefs, and I didn't have the person's name, um, started knocking on some doors looking for this black budget program that Greer had talked about, black budget program of alien tech and bodies. Mm -hmm. um, basically did his own search. I didn't have details that were given to me at the time. Um, and I didn't read those details in the document, um, although they were available in the document. Anyway, what I learned from this scientist who said to me, yes, two months later, he has a meeting with a few members of the program, private company, including the corporate lawyer who denied him access, which angered him. And he said, this transcript, which you have in your hands, was written down by 
a scientist who I know quite well who interviewed this man. And this man is talking about the frustration of, um, of the experience. So that was, and you know, after that, I, I talked openly about this document for years, but I didn't have a copy of it. Um, and then it was leaked to uh, Grant Cameron, researcher, Canadian researcher, back at the end of 2018. And then a few months later, it was leaked to me uh, from a source that I still, I suspect that I know who it was, but I actually don't have a confirmation. And it's uh, about 15 pages, and it's a full transcript of a meeting between Dr. Eric Davis of the National Institute of Discovery Science with Admiral Thomas R. Wilson, who was the head of intelligence for the Joint Chiefs of Staff back in 1997. Anyway, Mitchell was there, astronaut Edgar Mitchell. Uh, when I learned it was Wilson, way, way back, after Stephen Greer wrote, wrote his book, Hidden Truth, Forbidden Knowledge, he mentioned his meeting with Wilson at the Joint Chiefs, and I wrote back to my contact. I said, oh, it had to be Wilson, right? And he says, yes, it was Admiral Wilson. I called Thomas Wilson shortly after that. And I just wanted, I knew that he would deny anything that was important. How could he possibly admit to anything? Like, could, could you imagine the former head of intelligence for the Joint Chiefs of Staff actually admitting, yeah, I knocked on some doors, I looked into this, I researched it, and even though I was head of intelligence for the Joint Chiefs of Staff, I was denied access to this program, which was designed to reverse engineer alien technology. Like, there's no way in hell. I knew he would never admit to that. But uh, I, uh, I did a, a total uh, ambush interview on this man. I <laughs> pretended that I was, I did. Um, I pretended I was doing just conventional research on the U.S. Navy in the late 90s and and uh, I admired his career and whatever. I buttered him up. And he said, sure, I'll talk to you. Got him on the phone. And I said, look, I'm going to tell you the truth, which is that I researched the history of the United States military with UFOs. And your name has come up in, uh, in a meeting that took place in 1997. He denied it, denied it, denied it. My memory is foggy. I have no such memory of this and so on. And then I said, look, sir, I, I have it on three very strong witnesses that you were there. And on top of that, I have you in Stephen Greer's book, which he didn't know about. He said, read me the passage. <laughs> I did. And, and then he said, oh, yes, well, I, I remember this now. Well, the only reason I met with these people is I was curious why a man of Dr. Mitchell's stature would be interested in such stuff. Uh, he said, I looked into it. Well, I said, he didn't say he looked into it. He said, I uh, met with them. And after that, that was it. I never looked into it after that. Everything else is poppycock. I, th I thought to myself, who says poppycock? But anyway, after that, he ended the phone conversation, and that was that. But um, the thing is this. The, those documents, uh, that, that one document that Eric Davis wrote, he was able to, in 2003, it was five years after the fact, six years later, he's, or is it 02? I can't even remember now. I think it was October 02. He was able to have that meeting with Wilson. His colleagues arranged it. He was basically sent on a mission, in my view, by the Bigelow crowd. That's what they were. That's what the National Institute of Discovery Science was. And so all of these scientists were associated with NIDS, including Edgar Mitchell. He was on the board, including people like Hal Puthoff and Eric Davis and Colm Kelleher. 
uh, and Dr. Kit Green. All of these people were in a very close circle with each other. And what's very obvious is through a mutual connection, they were able to get Davis to, to they were able to get Davis to fly out to meet with Wilson. And they were able to get Wilson to agree to a meeting. Now, why? Totally informal. Because those guys, then and now, because they're still connected to TTSA, of course, some of them, um, they're all trying to get to the inside of the labyrinth. It's all that they want. These are the people who have like good clearances. They have good, not often perfect, but they have good information on the UFO ET phenomenon. And they've got the bug and they want answers. So they sent Eric Davis or Eric Davis agreed to go. However, it worked out on a mission to get important intel from Wilson. Because they knew about it right away because Edgar Mitchell was part of it and he came back. He obviously was talking to them back in 97. They all knew about this right away. I spoke to one person connected to these documents and he says, off the record, you want me to tell you? I knew about this from the second, from day two. I knew. In other words, from the day after it happened. Yes. He knew all about the, the, the meeting and the document and everything else. So they all know it's true. They just can't admit to it. Yeah. Because they all have security yeah. clearances and it would just make them look bad. So I understand that. And I've told the relevant parties, the ones that I've spoken to, I respect where you're coming from, but you've got to respect where I'm coming from. And I will not throw you under the bus. I will make that promise to you. But other than that, I'm talking about this as much as I'm able to and, and, um, and can. Yeah. So, yeah. So, that's, so the Wilson document really shows... Uh, when, when you study the details of the bureaucracy of what Thomas R. Wilson, what he tried to understand, what you see is that the black budget program, actually there were several of them, programs plural, were deeply, deeply, deeply hidden so that you only have really a, a few, apparently, of so very few members of the Pentagon who have any access to this program, which is dominated by a private contractor. Uh, we all believe it's Lockheed Martin in this case. I'm sure Boeing's got their share, and I'm sure Raytheon may have theirs and so on. But this is probably a Lockheed program that Wilson bumped into. And they just said, we're meeting with you only to appease you uh, so that you don't cause any more of a ruckus. And we're going to get you out of our hair, and you're not in the program, so don't even bother. And Wilson said, well, I'll, I'll complain. They said, fine, be our guest, complain, won't get you anywhere. And he did try to complain, and he was threatened with the loss of his career and also early retirement and losing a couple of stars along the way. And he basically just sucked it up and said, fine, I'll play ball. But he was angry. Um, of course. So, so the, the takeaway from this is that the United States government structure – that is the Pentagon, that is the CIA, that is even the Department of Energy. That's the other big one. The government players, as far as anyone can tell, do not have a whole lot of access or power or influence over these programs. They are dominated by private money. One yes. thing Wilson noticed in the, in the conversation, when they, the three guys that he met with showed him what's known as the BIGOT list. That is the list of people who's in the classified program, B-I-G-O-T. 
and he's looking at it. He's like ninety plus percent of these guys are are company men. They're not. They're not DOD. He said, "I recognize one or two of these people. That's it." And but that's how it is in the classified, the special access programs. They're dominated by the private contractors, and it's the contractor inevitably who decides who's in, who's out. Not you, the DOD liaison. No, it's the contractor. Yeah. You've kind of illustrated uh, my next question with everything you've just uh, told us about the Admiral Wilson leak. But in the wider field of uh, ufology, uh, you have some researchers who, who, who make their focus bullying NASA, uh, others giving a platform to experiences, contactees. Your focus has been on documentation and crash retrievals. And uh, my question is, why, have, uh, just on those, and you've kind of answered that, but have you been tempted to stray beyond oh, into of other aspects of the field? Oh, I, I stray beyond all the time, every day. Um, earlier today, I'm, I'm actually uh, making a pet project of creating my own likely typology of, uh, of probable alien slash extraterrestrial beings. I've gone for such a long time of, of intentionally not speculating about that. And I thought yes. I, I want to develop my own best ideas about what I think is actually All going right. on. I was just, just acknowledging that uh, some speculation, but what are the conclusions that you've drawn by this point? Well, I'm still actually working this out, so I'm not prepared to give a number that uh, of how many types of ET or alien groups there are. <clears throat> uh, and in terms of agendas, uh, I'm, I'm going to be a little bit vague here, but what I will say is that to, uh, uh, you know, if we just think logically of how many intelligent species are in this galaxy alone, it's actually a mind-numbing amount, mind-boggling amount. Um, how many of them have been able to learn about us that have, even if they're 100,000 years in advance of our own civilization, I think it is fair to say that they would very possibly have an ability to learn about us. And if they're as little as a million or even five million years ahead of us, which is nothing in the age of the universe, they would be very capable of observing us for the, our entire existence and we wouldn't even really necessarily know about it. So all of those things are possible. And so that would mean that there could be a definite variety of intelligences that are monitoring us. And I think that's actually the case. Monitoring and, and infiltrating and uh, covertly dealing with us. I will get into the, the types in a moment, but people will say, well, why are they so secretive about it? And I ask myself this question as well. And well, one thing is just is kind of logical. Like if putting the most benign interpretation on it, if if you were a, a non-terrestrial race looking at humanity, how successful do you think, how positive an experience would it be if you were to land openly and announce yourself to these people? Like particularly in the last... 100, 150 years, even if you could control them technologically, like you would see these are uh, 
can be aggressive. They can be violent. They can be difficult. They could be a real pain in the ass to control. It's totally possible. Um, and you might also cause the society to dissolve in, in certain key ways. Uh, you might not want that. Like, it would be very evident that you would want to keep a low a low key presence to these people that's under the best of circumstances if you had a desire to farm these people genetically or manipulate them in some way similarly you would not want to make your presence open uh if there were other groups out there that you were competing with in the intergalactic sphere you might also want to keep your presence low so as not to alienate them there are actually a lot of reasons that on reflection I can see why these other beings, these others as I sometimes call them, uh, would keep a low profile from us and from each other. That's just one possibility. Now as to who they are, well let's look at evidence. What is evidence? Well there's evidence of UFO sightings, military sightings of various craft that there is no reason to think that we're making some of these craft. So someone is making them from somewhere. Based on that, I'm willing to accept some of the consistent witness testimonies of these alien beings. So there's the greys. Everyone knows about the greys. Yes, they abduct people. Yes, they are involved in creating a hybrid hybridization program. I believe that. I think that when you look at... Um, Dave Jacobs' work, and I've read every book that Dave, Dave has written and lots of his articles. I, I admire his research capability, and I admire the bravery of his conclusions. I don't think that his perspective is comprehensive, but I think that what he sees is correct. So that there is a group of beings that are here. Let's call them, I mean, the greys work, in his opinion, they work for the insectolin-type beings. And that they have a hybridization, planetary takeover agenda. Um, I think that's a real possibility. I think that actually is a possibility. Mm. There could be other, other uh, things going on with why they're doing hybridization and why they're talking about, supposedly about the great change that he keeps getting from his people. But I think that that's a real possibility. But there are definitely other kinds of beings that are here and you know in in dave's david's opinion the human looking hybrids is only a very recent phenomenon mm -hmm. and this is where actually i disagree with him and i think that there is a long history of entirely human looking ufo occupants as we would say going back yes. many generations um and you know, when you're getting into pre-19th century cases, admittedly, it's tough to know how to take some of these. But if nothing else, there are good cases of completely human-looking operators of UFOs going back to the 1960s and 50s and 40s, and probably earlier. And that doesn't fit with David Jacobs' hybridization thesis. It seems to me that there have been beings that have used humans they probably bred their own humans for a long time they probably genetically enhanced those humans for a long time they've made those human beings culturally more akin to them 
than to us. So I think those, you know, when people talk about the Nordics or whatever, uh, yes. beings who have telepathic capability, I myself have come into a number of first-hand cases where people have described these situations to me of complete yeah. human-looking beings that have intense telepathy that are clearly not operating on our level. Yes. Um, and I think that they have been here for a long time. I think they've been here a In, long time. Uh, I agree. Uh, and I agree. I believe there are references to those kinds of encounters in ancient, ancient mythologies and narratives that have been with us for centuries and maybe millennia. In your time in the field, though, in, in the last 25 years, a um, couple of questions. Have you had any encounters that made you wonder if everyone in the room was human? Have you ever had any men in black come knocking on your door saying, uh, dial it down a bit, Richard? Not really. I, I, the most that I've had were uh, some, some hassles uh, relating to airport travel 15 years ago, post 9-11 America. And I did have a, a period for about a year or more where I would have a very odd, mysterious white van park in front of my house on a regular basis. And at one point, I was talking in uh, my kitchen uh, about this quite openly, saying, damn it, I'm going out there right now. I'm going to knock on their window on to find out who the hell these people are. And the moment that my foot left the house, hit the sidewalk, they just pulled off. And that was yeah. it. I could see them again after that. And I, I've had um, a telecom guy in, my, in this very office many years ago because uh, I'd call them in to complain about my terrible internet. He climbed up the telephone pole behind my house, stood right here, you're, it's off camera, and said to me, I don't know what you're into, ma'am, but you've got a lot of people interested in you. This is actually what he said to me. All right. <laughs> I'm not surprised. This is, this is around 2002, 2003, early for me. And the best that he could do was to clear up the signal so that my internet was improved, and he was able to do that. Yeah. And I said, you don't know what I'm into? Well, we'll look at my bookshelf. <laughs> well, Richard, as I get further into this field in my own research, I might need some advice from you on that front. And uh, once we stop filming, I've got an encounter of mine I'd love to share with you. But uh, so remind me, don't let me forget. But I have a wrap up question for this conversation. And it is um, kind of a broader question in the light of everything that you've learned over the last 25 years with regard to the UFO phenomenon, with regard to how government works in this arena, where, where we as the general population fit into the story, in the light of everything you've learned about the world, if I were to come to you, imagine that I'm a young person, I've just finished my studies, I'm about to embark on my, my life, my life choices and choose a career and all that, if I were to come to you and say, uh, Richard, in the light of everything you've learned, what advice can you give me as to how I should live my life? How, how would you advise me? Because I've heard you on this, this question before, and I've loved what you have to say. Oh, well, thank you. It would depend on the nature of that person, first of all. So there are, because we're not all the same. Not, you know, the people that I grew up with, who I love dearly, are not, 
most of them are not explorers. They're not fighters. They, they're regular people. It's the salt of the earth. And um, those are the people that I, I actually love the most because they're the ones that raised me. But for most people, I would say you have to find what you love and pursue it and be true to that. Um, to someone who actually has a fire inside them, who has ambition and and really has a true yearning for truth, I would I would say you're going to have a, a long and hard fight in your life ahead of you because once you leave the uh, security of your high school or college situation and you go out into the world, there will be pressure on you from every direction and every person to give up thinking independently altogether for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. The pressure is intense. And it's hard to fight it because life life is tough. You have to go out. You have to get a job. You have Then you fall in love and then you have children and then you have a mortgage and you have rent and you've got responsibilities. And the next thing you know, 15 years have gone by and all of those ideas and dreams that you had uh, that burned as a fire are now ashes. They're burned out. And you're just running out the clock like that's what happens to most people. So what I would say to that person is you have to fight for your intellectual independence. And by that, I simply mean your education is a lifelong process. It doesn't end when you get your diploma. It, in fact, when I look back, I had, I had a very fine education formally. And it's, there's no question that the education I've had since then is vastly better than what I had in the university. And I had a good university education. Mm-hmm. So that, that maintaining truth, maintaining true to your ideas of your destiny, like there is no substitute for that because you only get one shot. There may be an afterlife. There may be multiple lives, whatever. But the fact is, what you have is this life. And even if there is an afterlife, even if there is a next life, don't you think that what you do in this life matters? Of course it matters. And if this is your one shot at mortality, then make it work and make it, make it worth something. So... It, it means balancing a lot of different things. Like we have obligations to family. We have obligations to just the ordinary day-to-day facts of life that we have to do. But there is the responsibility to yourself. And if you've got that desire, then you must be true to it. And, and the other thing that I w- would really say is there, once you succeed... Success is actually much more scary than failure. Success is way more scary than failure. Because when you fail, you're right back to where you were. You're in comfortable territory that you at least know. When you succeed, everything changes. And everything is unsettled. And it actually, it it can be really difficult. And, And then once you achieve any kind, any kind of notoriety or any kind of public recognition in any way... The, the real battle, and I can say this for myself because it's a struggle every day, the battle is to maintain true to who you believe you are rather than what other people think that you are. Because there's always a public persona that's created. 
and the temptation is overwhelming for someone to live up to those that public expectation. So, for yes. example, the the temptation then is to never change your mind. Like if yes, you you're a UFO skeptic, private skeptic, who cares if you change your mind and become a believer? But if you're a public skeptic, you've created your reputation on being a skeptic. There's no way in hell you're going to become a believer. And I I know that there are public skeptics who privately have really questioned that skepticism. And similarly yeah. with myself, like it's there's a real danger in taking definitive positions on the UFO subject because then you become married to them, as it were. And you've got to be willing to go where the data leads you. You've got to be willing to change your mind. Yes. Uh, otherwise, you you know better than the people who oppose yeah. you. Absolutely. Richard, for anyone who's new to your work, can you tell us how we can follow your work, uh, keep up with what you're doing? Sure. Thank you. Um, I have got two primary websites. One has all of my books on it. It's called richardolanpress.com. Uh, I don't update it as much, but it's a, it's a, it's a good overview of uh, the books and booklets that I've written and also books that I've published by a few other really cool authors. And then I have an active site uh, most of it's behind a paywall, but not all of it. It's just called richardolanmembers.com. Um, like everything that I do on my YouTube channel, I put up there. Everything that um, that I do that's public is up there, but also I do a lot of writing for the members of my site. This is how I support myself now. This is the only model that I've found that can work that will allow me actually to do this work full-time. So I'm very lucky that I've got a very supportive uh, membership site that they um, they throw me a couple of dollars a month and it pays my bills and allows me to work in my basement office and to do to do this work. So richardolanmembers.com <clears throat> is where I'm, I actively put up uh, a lot of my ideas and research these days. Fantastic. Richard, it's been great fun talking to you today and I hope we can talk again sometime. Uh, thank you so much what you do and thank you today for joining us on the fifth kind tv paul it's been my pleasure um i on, honestly really been looking forward to this interview we spent a few weeks trying to set it up and i was we really did. interested in doing it um i like talking with you because i i like sharing these ideas with other people who are really engaged in the subject ufos is the most fascinating subject that i can imagine and when, once you start a deep dive, it shatters all of the old paradigms, just as you have found. It does. As I have found. But you've got to be brave to do this subject. You really do. Um, and you've, you've got to be brave and you've got to have, have to keep your spirits up because it's easy to get discouraged. There's a lot of depressing things out there. But last thing I'll say, human beings have dealt with horrible injustice, have dealt with awful privation, with despair, with all these bad things. For our whole history, we've dealt with it. We're very strong. We're very resilient. We're much stronger than we realize we are. And we can still, even in the worst situation, we can, we can show God and the universe and the cosmos just what we're made of. And that's, to me, what it's all about. Amen to that. Thank you yeah. so much, Richard. Thanks. Thank you, Paul. Richard, for coming on the show. It's been really good to listen to you. Um, Thank you, Tony. Uh, 
Uh, just a few few questions. If you don't, I don't know if you want to get this. This is something that we could um, potentially not air. Um, but I was just wondering, with what's happening in the world recently, if this is any co concern to yourself with the agendas that might be going on behind the scenes. It seems yeah. very um, very frowned upon recently for anyone. Uh, having any alternative thought process towards what the mainstream narrative seems to be right now. I'll gladly give you uh, my opinions and you can put it anywhere you want, YouTube or anywhere else. I don't care. Um, I have a couple of thoughts about, about COVID-19 and coronavirus. Uh, I'm not pretending that I'm the expert, but like probably both of you and probably like anyone listening, I've spent as much time as I'm able to to understand it. So what I would say is I don't believe it's natural. I think it's a man-made virus. I think it probably likely came out of the Chinese uh, level four bio lab very close to Wuhan. That's, to me, it's beyond coincidence and it's most likely. On top of that, there's a great deal of research that had gone into coronavirus around the world. Um, the fact that it may have something to do with a bat doesn't mean that it wasn't manipulated in a lab. So I think it probably came from that lab. My best hypothesis is that it came out by accident, not by design. I could be wrong. If it came out by design, I asked, did the Chinese do this? Did the U.S. do this? If the Chinese, what's their goal? It, it helped to wreck their economy. Now, they seem to have been recovered, but it was a, me a hell of a hit for them. If U.S., how? Did the U.S. have an operative in the Chinese lab? I don't really see that as... I, I suppose it's possible, but there's, I have no reason to believe that. Um, and also, it's a, if, if it's some Bilderberg Illuminati thing that people love to say, there is not a single fact or even cogent theory as to how this happened. So I don't see it. And on top of that, there are definite winners. Big Pharma is going to be a big winner from this. But, but Big Oil is a big loser all right so so there are some huge players that are losing as a result of this um, now what i believe is in a situation like this you have two types of responses you've got the definite confusion panic chaos element of it and that was evident in every single nation's response certainly the united states response in the beginning no one knew what they were dealing with and then you also have the other responses where the wolves come out Bill Gates wanted to create the digital tattoo. Um, the surveillance that is now being promoted around the world. Tony, you're over in the UK. Honestly, I think the UK has lost its mind over this pandemic. The, the amount of public snitching that is being encouraged there is, is beyond anything that I would have thought possible in the United Kingdom. But it seems to be happening. Um, it's quite um, disturbing, to be honest. Um, even talking about this to family members is almost like trying to leave a religion or something when you're trying to question the mainstream narrative right now. It, it's absolutely. I, I would say this. Look, in the in the first weeks of this, I was scared. I'm not going to lie. Uh, you look at the numbers. The numbers were uh, ridiculously high mortality rate and a transmission rate that was... Should I'm I getting an echo. Oh, yeah. Hold on. Let me fix something at my end. I'll, I'll lower my volume as well. That might help. 
Are we good? Yeah, I can hear you. I think something happened with Paul. Okay, good. You were great before you took those earbuds out, Paul. I know. Thanks a lot, Paul. (laughs) Anyway, as I was saying, um, the uh, uh, now I can't remember my train of thought, but oh, the wolves come out. So there's always opportunism. That doesn't mean it's a false flag. That doesn't mean it's a pandemic. If it's a pandemic. If you want that as your theory, fine, I say, but you've got to come up with something more than, well, it's in their interest. Because the fact is, for those people who are the masters of our universe, who are running our world, they will always find a way to take a crisis to their own benefit. That doesn't mean that they planned it or made it happen. And the, the other problem is that, um, oh, the, the, uh, what I wanted to mention, I lost my train of thought here, the surveillance and the there's going to be a really bad repercussions of this for our world. There's no question about it, but it's not going to change anything other than just speed things up that are already happening. I mean, we're already moving toward China's social credit system. It's not like, you know, we're kidding ourselves and thinking, Oh yeah, we just had, we had freedom and China. Didn't we're like a decade behind China at the most in terms of implementing a full scale social credit system. Anyway, we already have Facebook public shaming and Twitter mobs and everything else to control what people think. So now it's just going to be worse and faster. Yes. So I think the COVID is being used to further consolidate a global control over discourse. I think that's absolutely true. We're seeing that as an excuse everywhere. But that doesn't mean it's a pandemic. Um, I'm a little uncomfortable with that theory just because... I like to be evidence-based and let's see some evidence. And, it, and I admit it may be difficult to prove that, but I think it's much more likely that this is something that happened by accident, unexpected, but which was uh, pounced upon by the Bill Gateses of this world. And yes, I am aware there were conferences about pandemics and coronaviruses and so forth, but, but people have to understand coronaviruses have been with us for a very, very long time anyway. So I don't really see causation there. But we are in a bad way. And then then the other thing is, there could be some good things that come out of this. If it destroys the EU, uh, you could almost say it might be worth it. Uh, The EU to me is a a Soviet-style institution that deserves to be destroyed and has done no good for anyone except maybe Germany, I suppose you can say. Uh, That's about it. It's unaccountable. It's undemocratic. It, and, and it hasn't been good for Germany either because they, they, there's no freedom of speech in Germany. And that's probably as much a function of the EU as the German constitution and German parliament, the Reichstag. So I don't, what are they, parliament or Reichstag? I don't know what they've got. Uh, the point is that the EU is under stress because of this. And I consider that a totally good thing. Um, the financial implications we all know are horrifically bad. Um, and it's going to be doubly bad if the real culprits culprits don't pay for this. In other words, the entire global banking system, which has no relationship to actual economic, uh, growth in any way and economic, uh, reality, uh, dominated by 
hedge funds and the fractional reserve banking system where you've got how many trillions of dollars of debt exist in the global economy? I don't even know. That whole thing continues to get bailed out. And that's the worst thing possible. Like if we had a genuine collapse of the global banking system and put the world back onto, say, the gold standard, I would almost say, fine. You know, the United States had to go through a four-year bloody civil war to end slavery. Okay, that's the price we paid. So would the world's price to end the global banking cabal be to have to go through this horrific uh, financial collapse if it actually ended in a reboot, a positive reboot of the global financial system? I doubt that will happen. I doubt that will happen because... You know, you, you, Paul, have a, uh, I'm guessing, have a spiritual, biblical, maybe Christian, Manichean view of the world. Well, this is a world in which the devils are running it. The devils being the that's bankers. That's they're right. running this world. And they're not going to let go easily. So, and by the way, my viewpoint may not be that far from yours after all these years. That's a funny thing. Yeah. I spent many yeah. years poking my Christian friends over and over again. I used to love to do it. And... I still don't share most of that cosmology, but okay. but I believe in good and I believe in evil. Sure. And, and um, anyway, I think the if you want to carry on provoking them, uh, if you want to keep mm -hmm. on provoking them, give them my book. Good. It really, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it really strikes at the root of some things. <laughs> well, I, listen, um, I say this with affection because I've got many wonderful outstanding christian friends and they're some of the best people i know um some of the most truly they they it's easy for western truly decadent awful western culture to uh to to take them down and you know 30 plus years ago i was one of those people and i look back and i i don't agree with a lot of the things that i said at that time but that's life but to answer the question about covid and where we're headed it, it's in a it's in a good place and a bad place. It's in, in bad places and good places, potentially. So I'm not willing to say that there's no good, but I think the bad will probably outweigh the good. Um, global police state, most likely. Global pharmaceutical forms of microchipping, yeah, probably going to happen. Um, I mean, we're at a point now where you've got the entire world begging for a vaccine. Not That's me. happening. This is the concerning thing, I think, yeah. Um. Well, I'm sorry to say this, but I don't think there's any way that it's going to be avoided. There's no way. Well, We're looking at the collapse of our society here. Well, there, there is some interesting things that, that there's, a, there's a few channels, um, one called the UK Column, who, who do kind of going into the statistical analysis. And they um, they seem to think that a lot of the a lot of the doctors are pressured to put this COVID nineteen death, and, yeah. and when they've compared it to like the lack of the flu and cold um, deaths and things, that it almost looks about the same as the two thousand and seventeen virus that we had at the time. And I don't you know I don't know enough about it um, to state that as fact, but it is interesting that there is quite a lot of reputable characters almost looking at this, um, questioning. You know how how actually dangerous this virus is. And, oh, I, and is I agree it, with you. It... Yeah, I, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that um, when it, I, did, I guess I didn't finish my thought. When this first 
came to our attention really in January, it seemed very scary, very dangerous. So it had a high, very high mortality rate and a transmission rate that was ridiculously high. And so it wasn't difficult to foresee a genuine exponential spreading of this that could really be like worse than the Spanish flu. And, and it, it looked like that could be the case. Uh, it was scary. Now, there are, that's obviously not true. And we're looking at a death total right now, currently, that puts it in the category of the swine flu about 10 years ago. A little over that. The estimated global deaths of swine flu, I think it was in 2009, wasn't it? Uh, it's a wide estimate. It's as low as 150,000 worldwide and as high as more than 500, maybe 600,000 worldwide. So that's a big range. But we're at over a quarter of a million now. So that's actually very much within that range. And, you know, the world did not shut down when we had swine flu. The world did not shut down during the U.S. Asian flu of... Uh, 1957, yeah. whatever. And the world did not shut down during the Spanish flu of 100 years ago when millions died. As a result of that, you didn't have a depression. You had the roaring 20s. So, so clearly, we reacted differently now than we have in any other pandemic. And it's, there's no question in my mind that the reaction to this does, is worse than the virus. Probably there's one thing about this virus that I don't hear many people talking about, but I think is a very possible factor, which is the incidence of male infertility as a result of getting it. There are a mm. few studies out of China and out of uh, Southeast Asia, and admittedly, they haven't gained a lot of wide traction, but it is because the, the virus attracts itself to the heart, the lungs, and the testicles in men. Because we've got them and women don't. And as after you've had it, there have been a number of studies apparently that show a type of scarring on the testes that prevent uh, fertility, that, that create infertility in the aftermath. So the thing that no one is talking about, but that is an, a real potential, in my opinion, so far, to be looked into is, do, will this result in massive infertility among the men who get it? even if they recover. And so this That's relates to these uh, um, elite figures who like to talk about depopulation. Right. Yes, that's right. Does I mean, it, that's where it does gets worrying for me to look at the character of Bill Gates, who, who he is in himself. You know, what does he look like, the kind of person who's out to try and save the world, or is there some other agenda? Um, when you see his friends and such, it does seem quite... Quite scary to myself. I don't know what your thoughts are. Well, I don't. I haven't. I don't know specifically about Bill Gates. People, a lot of people know much better than I do. But I do know that when you're talking about that strata of society, those people at the top of the top of the top, who really are the the owners of this world, who really do control governments. Um, if their name is Rockefeller or Rothschild or Morgan or Lehman or whatever, they they don't look at the rest of the world the way we look at each other. It's like in uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald's novel, the, the Great Gatsby, where Jay Gatsby says, you know, or the, the narrator says, the rich aren't like you and me. And what he meant was, 
And what, what uh, a writer named Ferdinand Lundberg, who wrote a great book called The Rich and the Super Rich, which I could pull off my shelf. It's a classic from the 60s. Lundberg studied the Rockefellers and all of their people. And he said, they do not look at the world the way you think that they do. They, you are a, a pawn for them. You are to be used by them for their purposes. You're not really fully human in their opinion, in their judgment. Yeah. They, they're fully human. They're the ones who have the right to make the decisions about the world. And the world that they're creating, which lines their pockets, coincidentally. Um, and so Bill Gates is in those circle of people. Bill Gates started out as a, a privileged, young, wealthy young man, but he wasn't in that stratum. He made his fortune. It's no question. So I don't know what his personality is like compared with people who've inherited their banking fortune from, from their great-grandpa, but I don't trust him. <laughs> I don't trust his motivations. I know what he's working for. He's working toward a, a transnational globalist society, and I don't support that. I, I, I mean, I have a mixed feeling about globalization, and please let me share it. Because I think that <clears throat> both sides of this argument do not understand where the other side is coming from. And I think that I do. So if you want to look at the pro-globalization side, go back to the First World War, the Great War, which destroyed an entire European generation of men. Like France lost 50% of men between ages 18 and 32 were casualties of the First World War. Half. That's why they called it the lost generation. And the Britain, the Brits and the Germans were pretty close to that. And the Russians and a lot of other nationalities were horrifically destroyed by that. And so what it did is it caused an entire generation of thinkers to understand that nationalism was destructive and could only lead to, to suicide. So it's not hard to see why there would be an attraction to something like the League of Nations or the United Nations after the Second World War had a, a repeat of that whole disaster. When you've gone through two world wars, it is not difficult to see why you would want a new world order, which is the title of H.G. Wells' book from 1940 when he proposed a new world order based on peace, internationalism, no war, and, you know, right? It's easy. You could see that idealism. And that is still the idealism of the left to this day. The left of the political spectrum believes in that. Um, you've always had the right, the conservatives, against that. Why? I understand that totally. I believe in being sovereign in my country. I believe that if I were part of a transnational, international system, I would have zero control over my, uh, the direction, the political direction of my society. That uh, a Tokyo court boardroom or a, a Shanghai boardroom would have more control over my city than my own government, which is often true. So I believe in sovereignty of the citizen. And for me, that's anti-globalist. And I also believe in um, a, a healthy, diverse economy, not a globalist monoculture. Now what we're seeing, you know, because of the supply chains are so centralized, so globalized, we are we actually have a brittle international economy, much more brittle than anyone wanted to realize. Mm. So there's, there's both of these arguments. And like, try to argue against globalization if you want to make an international phone call or an international Skype call. Like, one requires a certain amount of international cooperation technologically, which means international law. Like, there's, it's inevitable. 
You've got to have both. You can't have just one or the other. It's like you can't have a society that's all conservative or all liberal either. Because like if it's all liberal, you will literally lose your mind. And if it's all conservative, you won't get it. Nothing will change. Like you got to have both. And it's the same with globalization. So for me, trying to understand how to resolve that, it's, it's like a balancing act. I understand that there are certain imperatives for globalization that are probably inevitable. I'm willing to accept that. But A, I don't believe that I have to go pedal to the metal to it at full speed ahead and completely disrupt my society, my country in the process. You know, where in my last 25 years that I've seen, I'm sitting here in this office in Rochester, New York, and I watched Eastman Kodak go up in smoke. And I watched many of the other industries in the Northeastern United States all go to China and all go to the Philippines and all go to other countries. And you know what? I don't have to support that. This is my country, and I'm allowed to fight for my fellow citizens, and I believe in that. So if you've got a process like that, it doesn't have to be full speed ahead. That's not really a solution. I don't know, know what the full solution is, but I don't like radical change in any sense, and globalization has been radical change. Yeah. And then, you know, there are different ways of doing globalization, and uh, I... Yes, exactly. you know, I love go, and there were different ways of doing Europe. And one particular model got chosen, and I liken it. To, I don't know if you uh, have watched any Star Trek in your life, which is sure, of course. But, uh, you you've got two models of unity in the Star Trek Next Generation universe. You've got the United Federation of Planets, so that's one model for unity, and then you've got the Borg, and I guess uh, we're feeling a little bit of. Uh, a pressure towards a Borg model. Of, oh yes, that's right. <laughs> of world management at the moment, and that's that's the kind of energy that I think is making a lot of us anxious. I'm all for a United Federation of Planets model, but a Borg model—they don't look very happy, do they? No, it, but it's almost. I'm almost. Oh, I'm sorry, Tony. You were going to say something. No, I was going. I agree. I think that's um, my point. Would have gone. Was going to be. I, I totally understand what you mean about globalization. Um, the worry is, do we want the lid glued down with the people that we've got now would be my con- And obviously how generations uh, and how susceptible people are to corruption, the kind of free, obviously with the, with the constitution and such, the writ things in it because they foresaw certain events that could particularly come about like this one, how they can almost get everyone to, sorry, go on. See what's, see what's, what's happening here, honestly, in my view, is a very powerful current that I don't I don't know how to stop. The current, as I see it now, is that humanity is moving into what I believe is its fourth fundamental stage of existence. So for 250,000 years, as this species, as far as we know, we were hunter-gatherers. As homo sapiens sapiens, uh, we had a larger brain capacity. We had 20% or more better bone density. We had 20% or more muscle mass We were smarter and stronger and probably better looking than we are today. Uh, And it was quite successful. But then about 10,000 years ago, we discovered sedentary agriculture. And that gave those societies a little bit of a population advantage. And that became the dominant form. The transition happened over a couple of thousand years, but it happened. So that was our second fundamental stage. That gave us ancient Egypt. That gave us the Roman Empire. That gave us the Middle Ages. 
that whole long period. And it, when you look back on it, you see that there's like it's a fundamentally unified group. I mean, you could take a French peasant from Renaissance Europe, drop him into ancient Egypt, and he'd probably figure it out. Like it wouldn't be that radically different that he wouldn't understand the nature of that world. Yeah. Uh, but you take that same French peasant, fast forward him a couple of hundred years into the scientific and industrial revolution, and you'd be totally lost. That's the third phase. The third phase of human society is what I would call industry slash science. It's completely remade our world. Um, over the last 300, let's say 300 plus years. And now we're moving into a fourth stage. That's the thing. Like we're not any longer staying in this standard industry science stage. And I don't know what to call this new one, except maybe for now the transhumanist phase. Maybe that's it. Each phase has allowed us to move further and further away from our biological animal roots, basically, as animal creatures here on Earth, as mammals. Um, and so now with the transhumanist phase, we're looking at several things that are happening all at once. Strong artificial intelligence, strong generative artificial intelligence by which computers will seem to be able to think consciously. Whatever their consciousness is, to me, doesn't matter. They'll seem like it. They'll be smarter than us. Uh, quantum computing and beyond. There's probably there's something called molecular computing, and there's other types that will revolutionize their computing. Total genetic mastery, that's a given with designer babies um, for those who can have them. Uh, advanced 3D printing. Sure, advanced nanoparticle 3D printing. Yeah, that'll happen. And then, of course, all the other societal things. Complete 24-7 surveillance of you through 5G smart tech. So, like, there will never be any privacy ever again for anyone in the future. That's gone. That's never coming back. And I don't know how to get it back, except maybe through laws that you can hope are going to be, like, some protection maybe for maybe 20 years until those are gone until the next big thing happens and those get thrown out the goddamn window pardon me so so no privacy total surveillance and then you know obvious minority report type uh big data will be crunched on you so that someone else knows your personality better than you will know your personality better than your mother knows your personality they can predict everything that you do in the course of a day um, so you're just, and then on top of that, what free enterprise will exist? Really ask yourself this. What, to me, yes. the truest core of freedom, there's intellectual freedom and there's economic freedom, and they're, they're really both equal. It's not one is more than the other. You've got to have financial freedom if you want to consider yourself free. And that yeah. means the freedom to engage in pursuits that you choose. How is someone yes. going to be able to do that in a world that's dominated by a couple of mega corporations that control everything? Yes, everything. this is one of my great concerns. Is it going to be possible for my children to live in a world where we can work for ourselves? It's a really tough game. Like I've got two young adult children myself, and I worry about this all the time. And they're smart, and I still worry for them. Yeah. Like, how are they going to be able to do this? And the fact is, like, are they, are, can they become just a meaningless cog in the big machine? Okay, well, people do that, fine. But are they ever going to have the opportunity to, to really stretch out, uh, to reach out on their own and create their own? And, like, in this world, it's so bureaucratized. It, 
I'm, I'm sounding like an old cranky man here with government regulations, but I'm a believer in small business. Mm. That's really all that I do is run a small yeah. business. And that's what, that's the backbone of any economy are small businesses. And I don't see a good future for that. I see no, a really micromanaged, manicured existence where everything <clears> is managed <throat> in, in these intricate legal frameworks. So what, what's happening to us is that our humanity is being drained right out of us. That's actually what's happening. In every way that you can look at it, our humanity is being stripped away from us. Our agency is being stripped away from us. At least that's the trend. And for me, let's say I'm 57 years old now. So I've got, if I'm lucky, I might have another 20 years where my mind is still working. Maybe 30 if I'm <laughs> really lucky. Probably won't happen. So, like, for me, if I got two decades left of good work left, I have to ask myself, what do I want to do with it? Well, I, yes, yeah. I'm obsessed by the UFO phenomenon, and I'll continue working that. But to me, the fundamental thing is, it's not about UFOs, it's about humanity. And it's about preserving yes. what is great about our humanity in this future potential dystopian nightmare that we are all facing and that the COVID pandemic has, in certain ways, accelerated, but it didn't cause it. Like, it's not causing yeah. it. It's just, it's accelerating it, but it's also potentially disrupting it to some extent. I, I want to come back to this one final thing here. It is very possible that COVID will throw a wrench into full-scale globalization. And you hear this even from... I mean, from a lot of uh, economic analysts, first of all, who are pointing out the dangers of full-scale globalization, if for no other reason than for our supply chain problem. Yes. So that there will be very likely an anti-globalist movement that will be very significant once this whole thing plays out. Uh, and there's also going to be a very strong reaction by many people against the lockdowns, there already are these very strong ones in the U.S. particularly. But so there, there are countermeasures going on to the full implementation of globalist agenda that is happening. And, and with the collapse, potential collapse of the oil industry, um, that and the, and the potential collapse of the United States petrodollar-based financial system this is, a, I don't know if it will collapse. It was supposed to collapse 20 years ago and it didn't. And it was supposed to collapse with the financial panic collapse of uh, 2008 and it didn't happen. But it could happen. And um, and if it happens, you're looking at a disruption to the global system that I don't know if anyone, even the Bilderberg Group, can really predict and manage so things can be up in the air and there are opportunities as well as dangers for for people like us mm. indeed you uh, let me just well, go off on my little rant yeah i know it's good you were you were on a roll didn't want to interrupt <laughs> <laughs> you think, um, and i agree what you're be... saying Oh, that type. Well, mm. so 
yes, people will probably try. Whether they're really going to succeed is a, is a tough call. Uh, I had, you know, one of my friends is Michael Tellinger, who's from South oh, Africa. Oh, lovely. I love him. Well, I, I like Michael very, very much. Michael and I bonded. We were in a six-week trip across the nation of Canada a few years ago in an in a RV, a Winnebago. So I got, we watched each other shave and get out of the shower and, you know, all of that. Uh, and Michael, will, I'll always be, feel close to him. But I had a lot of arguments with Michael over his ideas of uh, what he called contributionism, yeah. which is a, one model of this type of, which I said to him, I said, this is very much like the classic utopian socialists of the 1830s and 40s. Yes, it is. People like Robert Owen and a lot of other folks who tried to start uh, these perfect communities based well they had different philosophical ideas um yeah, i think all, it was kind of kind of what marx wrote about as well well yes of course absolutely marx came out of i mean he was working off of those examples which preceded his own writing um my argument against it is that there they all end up in repression they all end up in coercion stalin is not an accident of Marxism. Stalin, in my view, is an inevitability, as is Mao, as are, as was Pol Pot. In other words, anytime that you're trying to enforce uh, certain things in any community on the basis of equality or equity, as people now like to say, you can only do it by coercion. Uh, you're not going to do it any other way because people are not all the same. And some people work hard and they want more money out of, as a result. They want more resources and they're entitled to it. They work hard, they contribute more. We're not all the same, but in terms of the like types of small isolated communes, how independent can they be? If you want to create your own house based, uh, you know, in certain environments, if it's warm and sunny, uh, are you going to really be able to be agriculturally self-sustaining? Are you really going to be able to provide water for your community and go off the grid in every way? There's only one way this can happen, and it can happen, and that is if we develop a genuinely free energy device that is yes. reproducible, that can be uh, like 3D printed in your living room. If mm. some nice, smart person uploads the design to the, to the Pirate Bay or some other place, you need, you need free energy. If you have free energy, everything is possible. But without uh, energy, none of it yeah, is, I don't think. I, and for Ed Mitchell, the question was, will we be allowed access to that technology? Well, let's ask ourselves a really hard question. This is an uncomfortable question. So can you trust yourself with free infinite energy? That's one question. And then the next question is, can you trust your next door neighbor with free infinite energy? <laughs> and can you trust every single person who lives in your city with free infinite energy? And can you trust every single person in this world with free infinite energy if that energy can also manufacture a pretty nifty bomb that can blow up half the Pacific Ocean? Well, something of course, like if they've been microchipped and we can watch everything they're doing. Exactly. Then... <laughs> exactly. Yeah. This is the scary thing. Like, believe me, I have asked, I've rolled this over my mind for years and years and years, probably close to 20 years now. I've been thinking about this and I haven't been able to square the circle other than through what you just said. And that pains me. Like, I don't yeah. like that solution. 
No, that's total surveillance state. But the fact is that free, true free energy can heat or air condition your home for free forever. It can help you do a lot of other things. It can help us do toxic remediation, probably. It can help us desalinate uh, water, uh, oceans, and all these other great things. But it can also make weapon systems that would be beyond imagination. And I had arguments with all kinds of really smart people who said, well, if people are given all that they want, they won't have war. And I just said, bullshit. Like, bullshit, man. That will never happen. You're asking people to be angels. You're not asking them to be human beings with emotions. People will always find something to get angry about. People will always find something to f- to feel jaded about, to feel like they've been victimized in one way or another. They're always going to be angry about something. It can be petty as anything, but it won't matter. So the question is, can we trust all of humanity with knowledge of free energy? Mm. And then ask, then put yourself in the position of aliens who are monitoring us. Uh, Yes, and uh, maybe pulling some strings. Aliens who may or may not have a sex drive. Maybe they don't. Aliens who uh, may not be raised by parents, so they may not have mammalian instincts of love and other types of emotions as well, though. Because we're Mm. mammals. We react in a certain way. They might look at us. They may be the Borg. They probably are. If you if you read Jacobs, Dave Jacobs carefully, they are the Borg, basically. They have no individuality, they're totally telepathic with each other. There's no privacy, there's no sense of self. That's what they are. And they're also psychopathic in the sense that we would describe like they don't have they don't have our emotional responses. But for them, total control is a given. For yes. we crazy primitive humans no, we're not. We're we're kind of wild. We're kind of irrational. We're kind of crazy. And honestly, I like it that way. I like yeah. us that way. I don't want to be like the greys or the boys. Me too. So I haven't figured this one out. I haven't squared this circle. But this is an issue that I, I hope to be continue to be thinking about for the next 20 years or however long I've got enough gray cells that I can rub together. This is, just brings me quickly to something I saw recently about, um, again, Bill Gates mentioning about um, reimagining education. And that, to me, just uh, straight away, my thought was the George Orwell 1984, everyone yes. sort of learning from a screen. And what a better way to get everyone on the same sort of narrative so there's not any orig- like original creative thinking so much like the Borg would want. <laughs> we've, well, we've really kind of probably lost the battle i mean i'm sorry to say this i have a a eight-year-old niece i love her to death she's addicted to tiktok they have got uh amazon alexa like that whole generation is being trained not to do anything like research they're they're actually totally trained in fact i think it was eric uh schmidt of google who uh said in an interview not long ago he said our goal with uh, Google, what is theirs, Echo, is when you ask a question, you don't get three different answers. You get one answer. You get one definitive authoritative answer. And so what they're training this entire next generation to do is simply ask Alexa, ask Echo. Don't do any work on your own. Don't understand that there's nuance 
to every single question you could ask. They, yeah. they don't want that. They don't want new ones. They want authoritative answers to questions and, so, and, yeah. and a total dependency on their tech. So they've got their hooks into this generation already. They've got them addicted to the technology. They've got them addicted to the games. They've got them addicted to the narcissism of their selfies and of Instagram and of TikTok. Like, they've just, they've just destroyed. They've destroyed yeah, these young yeah. people. And um, in addition to the food toxins that they're eating, they've now got the mental toxins that they're taking in. It's something I'm really conscious of with our kids. My kids are five, nine, and 11. And they're being educated uh, uh, in a system that puts them on their devices and gets them researching through their yes. devices. And I, I love my kids, and I'm really proud of the extent to which they will wonder about something that they've been told. And sometimes right. they'll say, uh, I was to told this or I read this. What do you think, Daddy? And I'll say, oh, well, what do you think? What do you think about that? Do you think that's right? You found that answer. Do you think that's the right answer? And just every single day we're having conversations like that, and I'm really encouraged. They've got that part of them that can say, yes. oh, I wasn't sure about that. Thank I goodness. don't know if that's right. And I know that that's going to make their lives uncomfortable, <laughs> uh, but I would rather have them alive. Uh, Absolutely. You know, intellectually emotionally alive and wrestling with the world they're going to live in than believe everything they're fed. You're teaching them to the best of your ability to think independently, and that's one of the best things you can do. I have so much sympathy for parents of young kids these days. I don't know how they do it. Like, it was hard enough when my kids were that age a decade ago. It, like, you could see... It's easy when you don't have kids to look at someone who's got children and say, they're doing all that wrong. Why are they letting their children participate in the system? Yeah, well, go try to do it. Like, it's yeah. really hard. I homeschooled my children for um, most of their education. My daughter was 11 when she went to a public wow. school. Um, oh, and good I, on you. I'm How did you do you. that? My goodness. It was hard work, and uh, but my wife at the time and I worked very hard on it, and we both were dedicated to it. Um, but But even then, it was hard. Like... Like, my kids avoided a lot of the cultural toxicity of society at the time, but not all of it because they have kids, they have friends, they have each other, and they're, they have an instinct. Like, parents can't control their kids. The kids have an instinct. They seek out other kids their age, and they just want to know what's going on. And, and they, they get attached to the phone. They get attached to social media. Uh, mine are pretty good about it, but... Um, but wow, it's such a hard thing. So when I see other parents struggling with it, I just will tell you, you have got my sympathy 100%. And, Thank uh, you. <laughs> and I know that it's really hard to keep them with some semblance of independence and dignity as they get swallowed up by the system. So I don't. I'm really, I'm really struggling to know what to teach my little boy about the world at the minute. He's five now. And then. Um, I do what Paul does basically, just you know, asking the similar questions like, "What do you think?" Um, but it's very hard to know what kind of direction to point him in. Well, the mo the most important thing you can do is to love your children with all of your heart and soul. The most important thing you just love them and then love them. Um, but one thing I did with my kids, um, 
when I wasn't smacking them around. No, just kidding. Uh, <laughs> we'll edit that out. Don't worry. <laughs> I'm, I'm joking, obviously. Um, one thing that I did with my kids every night, like every night, was I read to them. Yes. So I read, I read, um, and like you find what they like, you know, you find, um, like my son very quickly got into history and science and natural sciences and we would just dive into that. And my daughter was, in, at the time, my, my daughter's very interested in sciences now, but back then she was interested in other types of stories and I would just read whatever they liked, interesting things. Um, and get them to read. Like the best thing you could do for your kids is to get them to be mm. great readers and really like good at math and good writers. To me, that's the fundamentals. Yeah. And all the other stuff they'll they'll find on their own. I didn't worry about yeah. teaching my kids any real science or history until they were ready. When they're six yeah. years old, what can they really understand? Um, so you get the skills up. And you just love them and let them explore. Yeah. And don't don't worry too much about the uh, the bad things in the world. They'll they're not strong enough for that. They can't they can't be ready for it yet. So they've got to be like a like any kind of athlete that's got to go through training, any kind of plant that's got to be strong enough to be able to withstand. Uh, so it's the same with a person. They've got to you have to you've got to make them strong. You've got to find ways to let them take risks, to let them get hurt, to let them be unsupervised. Yes. I, I'm terrified when I watch. There are no 10-year-old kids that, like, have unsupervised time. Like, they're, they're in the house with their parents, then they go off to school, and then, like, if they're playing with friends, there's, like, always some adult somewhere nearby watching. It's like, let these kids go off and yeah. break the law or vandalize. So they're, they're being trained for surveillance. Totally. Yeah. And, and I say break the law and vandalize with, with a little bit of irony, but not total. Like when I look back on my childhood, I was, and probably you guys, I was totally unsupervised when I was out. Ah, oh, me too. I would cycle yeah. for miles. I'd go, I cycled to other towns. My parents had no idea where I was. Absolutely the same with me. And I got into fights. I, I got into and avoided and yeah, I dealt with bullies and dealt with crowds of people who often did not like me. And you have to learn skills. You learn how to deal with other kids who are different than you, who don't think like you, who... Uh, and you have to learn to cooperate, and you have to learn conflict resolution. Like all of these skills have been taken away from young people. They're not allowed to solve their own problems uh, almost ever. And yeah. and all that we're doing is we're, we're raising the most brittle generation yeah. of human beings who've ever lived ever. Yeah. And we're yes. raising them right now. So love your kid, but but also let your kid like make mistakes and get hurt. And yes, get into fights, like, and resolve fights. All yeah. of that is necessary for them to understand how to deal with the world, because it's only that way that they develop courage, and and also wisdom in learning how to negotiate a much more treacherous world when they get even older. Yeah. Wow, Tony, we've got to leave that section in. That's 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 really <laughs> important. It's really inspiring. Oh, Can I just go it. off script a bit? <laughs> yeah, I hope so. It says you're recording. I've recorded on Skype. While I've got, while I've got you, I've got to tell you, um, 
this experience because it it relates to something I've heard you talk about before, Richard. I, uh, you know, from time to time, people who contact me say, have you had a close encounter, Paul? Why are you passionate about this subject? And my answer has generally been, no, I I haven't. Um, No, I haven't. I've heard some accounts that I, I take seriously, but I haven't experienced anything myself. And then just recently I realized I had three experiences when I was 20, but at that time I was, um, my worldview didn't allow for anything other than God, the devil, angels, demons, us, animal, vegetable, mineral, and there was nothing else. So right. everything I experienced, I interpreted through that framework. Yes. Now looking back, I realized three things happened to me when I was 20 that I might read differently. And one was uh, I, I was living alone at the time in a beautiful apartment in the city of Bath in England, if you've ever been there. I have, and I loved it. It's beautiful, isn't it? Yes. I woke up at about uh, two in the morning and could see uh, four or five entities in my room that I didn't know what they were. And I, I just hid under the covers. And at the time, I thought something demonic is happening. Now I look back and think something else might have been happening. At the same time, I experienced some lost time, and it's taken me a long time to realize that's what the experience was that in I lost. In connection some time. with that event, Paul? I don't know, but it was at the. It was in this. It could have been, you know, the next week that that okay. I realized I'd lost some okay. time, or a couple of weeks later. And then at the same time, I went to visit some friends in another place, a town called Chichester. And I went into a health food shop. And for years, I didn't know how to, I, I hardly told anyone this because it sounded like a nothing experience, but it was powerful for me. I went into this health food shop in the early evening and there were these three people in the shop and they were, they were very tall they had blonde hair, pale skin, two adults, and a child in a stroller. And they walked around that shop in complete silence. The two adults were selecting items separately without talking to each other at all. And then they got to the till, they paid, and they left, never a word spoken. But what was so unusual was the feeling coming off these people. There was this incredible feeling of energy and um, light and uh, a a wonderful, peaceful feeling coming off them. And I was staring at them thinking, who are they? What, why are they affecting me like that? And at first I thought, because of my worldview, I thought, are these angels? Maybe they're not human. And then I thought, no, angels don't have babies. That, That doesn't make sense. And they got out the shop, and I thought, I have to go and talk to them. I have to find out what, what's going on. And I went out the, the shop, and, but I didn't see them. And I thought, no, I'm not going to run down the street. That would just be too weird. <laughs> uh, it, was, it was such a vivid experience, and I didn't know how to process it until I began to accept that there might be people among us who are not from here, who, who are not us. And that there was something different about the field of those people. And I heard you talking just a couple of weeks ago about somebody having an encounter with 
tall whites or Nordics. Uh, I think they were in a church or something, and oh, yes. they were speaking telepathically to each other, saying, we're blending quite well here. And then one of them says, yeah, except for the girl two rows behind who can hear everything we're saying. And I was thinking, I think, that was, I think it was that. I think that's what I was experiencing. And I don't tell many people because it just sounds like nothing. But right. I know that something very powerful happened. I respect what you're saying, and it's that's quite interesting as well. In fact, all three of the things you said from when you were 20. Yeah, like the uh, the appearance of the entities in your room. I'll assume that it was a very clear vision that you had, so that you were quite sure that you were not dreaming. That's why you're saying it now. So, that oh yes, hey, yeah. This is a story that that you know other people have said to me. Um both as children and as adults, where um, in one case that I know very, very well, uh, it, was, it was three entities that were in a doorway. And this person at the time was a little girl. She was about 11 years of age. Um, and she saw silhouetted three entities in the doorway of her, of where she was in bed. Um, the hall light was on, so she had the silhouetted vision uh in the middle of the night and she was adamant she was awake it was not a dream she closed her eyes and wanted them to go away she opened her eyes they were still there this happened several times and then she lost her memory but woke woke up the next morning with a, a triangular series of pinpricks on her wrist and always assumed that it was like a demonic or some kind of spiritual thing and only many years later wondered wait a minute was that a an et visitation um which i personally believed probably was knowing more about this individual and her experiences um and in your case when you mentioned missing time around that period it's a natural thing to wonder i mean I, I don't I don't know what happened to you, but it's a natural thing to wonder mm. that someone was interested in you. The hybridization program, the uh, program to extract genetic material from us, I think is probably very widespread. So that could mean a lot of people contributing to the program. That could have been yourself. Yeah, or not. Very it could possible. be something else. Yeah. I was absolutely astounded the other day because uh, you may know that Australia is less uh, a culture less open to this kind of conversation than than America is. Um, I know a few researchers in this field who have left Australia and moved to America so they can <laughs> do, actually do their yeah. work. Uh, so I was open mouthed when um, I think it was last year. Ita Buttrose, who's now the chair of the ABC, um, interviewed a lady who claimed to have been involved in the hybridization program. Yes. On mainstream television and gave her a serious, respectful interview. And I couldn't believe it was happening. Good. That's, yeah, we're, there are changes happening. This leads back to the, well, I should probably wrap this up soon. But, uh, you know, when we started our conversation, uh, we were talking about, is this a, a drip of disclosure or some kind of controlled situation? What I think is, is happening is that the 
you know, since we've, especially since we've had internet since really the 90s, uh, things have just exploded. I mean, the UFO subject is a genuinely important subject in this world. And once people had the ability, unfettered, to talk about it through the web, um, it has had over time a strong effect even on the established official culture so that it's becoming more and more impossible for that establishment to ignore it like it's just it can't be ignored forever and i think this is what is happening i think we're seeing enough of a cultural change taking place because of 25 years of relatively open discussion about this subject via the web that it is having an inevitable effect on the established the controlled media that the established controlled media that exists they have to make concessions this is why the navy the united states navy is making their concessions because mm. frankly the cat's out mm. of the bag anyway so yeah i think that's what that's what the whole analogy of toothpaste out of the tube and i think yeah that's it's a good thing it's an inevitable thing like enough cultural change has has happened in the past generation that we are seeing some of those effects is reflected in the mainstream um, culture as well. Mm. I think that's what's happening. Yeah, it's a slow process of change, and it's because we're moving into we're moving into a new phase of existence, the transhumanist phase, whatever it is. Like, there's so much mm. change happening. This is one of those changes. I I think. So. Awesome. Tony, are you still there? Are you awake? Yes, I'm here, guys. I'm still. I could, I could see this for hours. <laughs> yeah. um, we're going to have to do it It's again half past. <laughs> I know yeah, it's half past three in the morning where you are. It is, yeah. yeah. That's, that's fine. <laughs> no, uh, yeah, you can wrap it up whenever. It's been fascinating um, listening to you guys talk and, and really appreciate you coming on, Richard. It's been great. Oh, yes. Thank you so I, much. I've enjoyed it. You guys give me see here in this house there's there's my wife Tracy, my daughter Elaine, my son Mike. They all are used to me. Like I feel like I get a little more out of control every year. And they have all learned just let dad do his thing. And like I'll just talk and they are totally entertained by it. This was never the case ten years ago. My daughter was like, Dad, shut up, you're so boring. But she's now at the phase where she actually loves it. I'm good. Uh and so they let me run loose here in the house. I feel lucky, but you guys have let me run loose, and I definitely appreciate that. Uh, thank you I so feel much. It's been a, it's I feel been a great inspired conversation. every day. Yeah, and I, I feel so. Thank you. For, yeah, and I've enjoyed it with you as well, Paul, and Tony as well. But uh, you right. guys have a great YouTube channel, and you do good work, and I'm glad to be part of it. Check out our main YouTube channel, The Fifth Kind, at youtube.com forward slash fifth kind. Check out our official website at fifthkind.tv.